We'll grab a seat. My name is Luke. If we haven't met, I'd hope to maybe get to meet you after the service. I'll be out there in the foyer. Um, just a couple announcements, real quick ones too, is if you are a guest, we'd love for you to fill out a Connect card just to let us know that you've been here, but we don't have any laying around because of COVID. We don't want to throw away a hundred and something pins every, every, every week. So we have a digital one and I don't know if we have the screen ready. Do we have our text screen that we could flash up there? All right. He's working on it. So this number right here, if you were to text connect at this number, what we'll do before the afternoon is we will send you a link to what we call a digital connect card. We could kind of go in there and type um, your information. We just love to maybe follow up and see how we could serve you as a church, all right? So full disclosure, we're going to call you, <laughs> all right? Or, or text you or email you, but we just want to know, is there a way that we could serve you well as a church? Any questions you have, anything like that? Um, so feel free to wear that number out as well if you have any questions about who we are and why we do what we do. Also, Nathan Simmons has worked really, really hard on some ways that we could be more effective as a church during a season like what we are in right now. One is putting us online in a full live uh, live feed, like a true live one, not like a fakey one where I do it for my living room or whatever and then we act like it's live, but like a genuine one, which is why it looks like there's a news crew here. There's not. That's our camera. Um, so he's working on that. Just to say, if you're not able to make it here throughout the summer or you get uh, in a situation where you have to shelter down, what, what you are watching is us kind of moving from a pre-recorded to a live feed. So there might be some awkwardness. We're working all the kinks out. Um, but another thing that Nathan has worked really hard on is getting everything that we have ever done as a church digitally onto Spotify. We're learning more and more that people are engaging content through different venues and apps. I know I have some folks in here that are pretty committed to YouTube. We have people in here that are committed to their Apple device. We have a lot of people that enjoy Spotify. So we now have a Spotify podcast where every single sermon that we have ever recorded has been exported and put over there, right? Even the old stuff, when I was a really lousy preacher and probably said stupid things, right? So maybe in a few years, I'll pull a Matt Chandler and delete all of that before I was where I'd like to be, but for right now, it's on there, so you can sabotage me any point by finding a sermon where I say something very boneheaded. Um, but we just encourage you to subscribe to the Spotify playlist and subscribe to YouTube. Because we are in a season, and this might be as long as we can see forward, where it would be helpful for us to put content out and for you to be alerted that new content is out, right? That a new video has been posted, um, that a new announcement has just been made, or a new sermon has been posted. There's no way for you to know that if you're not subscribed to anything. So listen, we're not getting a check from YouTube. <laughs> that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for revenue right now, and that's why I want you to subscribe. I'm doing it strictly for you so that you know, okay, there has been an announcement that has been made. Um, I think that will be helpful for us as we communicate with you. All right, moving on from that. If you have a Bible or a device that you use on your phone, go to Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes 5, we are nearing the midway mark of our work through the book of Ecclesiastes in this series that we call Life Under the Sun. I've been getting great feedback from a lot of you on this sermon series. I'm excited about it. It's challenging though, I'll be honest, as a preacher, this is one of the more challenging books for me. While you're turning to Ecclesiastes 5, I've got one big question for you. It'll be a question that we revisit through the sermon. And it is simply this, why are you here? Why are you here? Not on earth, 
but why are you here at West High School on a Sunday morning, right? I mean, what, what is it that you were hoping to get in a moment like this? What, was, what were you hoping to gain today? I'm not trying to be overly provocative or existential right now. I just know how easy it is to slide into a routine where things just are mechanical, where we do Sunday stuff on Sunday. And I know how easy it is to go through the motions and realize after years or months even how mechanical everything feels, how dry everything feels. So what motivated you to get up in the morning and be a part of this moment today? All of us are going to have different answers. Did you come ready for this today? Did you come with your heart postured before the Lord today? Or did you just barely make it in the door, right? Or maybe it's all of the, all of the above for some of us, right? I've had mornings where it's all of the above. You see, this is going to require a bit of honesty from all of us and, to be honest, some discomfort. I saw this sermon coming months away and <laughs> not been looking forward to preaching it for myself, right? Because it's the discomfort of us facing why we do what we do. Not just what we do, but why we do what we do. And why we do what we do says just as much about us as anything that we can do. A.W. Tozer has this quote. We used to hammer this hard at the very turn of the year. And it is the quote of what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I would add to that and say what comes into your mind when you think about God is reflected in how you worship. How you worship. And today, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, that's how he refers to himself as the preacher. We, we're, we're pretty sure it's Solomon, but the preacher, is that's, that's, where we, that's what we get from the word Ecclesiastes. That's what the word means. He has some very helpful words for those of us who feel dry and meh when it comes to how we worship. It's going to be helpful to show us how mechanical and cheap our worship can become over time and how much Jesus loves us in the midst of it. And it's that second part that matters, right? Not that Jesus loves just bad worship, cheap worship, but he adores broken worshipers. I mean, if, if the gospel is not for careless worshipers, then we are all doomed. But this is what I love about the gospel, is that it's perfect for those who are imperfect about even how they worship him. I think it's important that we recognize that before we even touch this passage because it's gonna be easy with passages like this to hang our head in shame and vow to change our performance so we're a little bit less of a disappointment to God. And that is not what God's after today. And that's not what we're after today. God today is after your heart. He's after your deepest affections, your adoration, so when we talk about worship, we're not talking about what you do as much as what you feel for the Lord. We're also not talking about how you sing either. This is a quick clarification, but if you've grown up in the church world, someone throws the word worship out, we typically think he means singing right now. And singing is a way of worship, for sure. But believe it or not, what you're doing right now by sitting there listening is a form of worship. Giving, communion eating out with your friends. You're going to be shocked, and we'll go over it a little bit, what it means to worship. Worship is your affections aimed. It's your affections aimed. We worship what we adore, and that can be seen by the decisions we make, by what we execute, the investments we make, 
It can be seen by what dominates our speech and our dreams and our thoughts. We bend our lives around that which we worship. So worship isn't something that just Christians do on a Sunday morning. It's something humanity does since we came from the womb. We can't help but to worship. We can't help it because we all have affections. We all have adoration. We all love things, like things, are drawn to things, and something is in the middle of our affections. So for our preacher, as we've been going through the last several chapters, he's been talking about what it means to live in this life under the sun. That's the phrase that we see repeated. It's repeated almost 30 times. That's why we used it as a title for this series. Living life under the sun is living a fallen world with a view where God is pretty much absent. God's not there. It's a life where we attempt to get ultimate meaning from the stuff laying around us. Creation, not creation. And this is a guy that has full access to a deep wealth and opportunity, so we've been watching chapter by chapter and passage by passage how he's tried everything and he has not found through all of his experimentation ultimate meaning in the things laying around. He's tried party, he's tried laughter, we've read this together. He's tried wine, he's tried work, achievement, money, power, sex, isolation we saw last week when Randy was up here. And this is the conclusion he keeps coming back to. It's all futile when it is separate from God as the centerpiece of our affections, right? This is why he keeps saying the same thing over and over again, but introduces it in the first chapter, Ecclesiastes 1.3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Because it's rough living here in this life under the sun, even if you love Jesus. You live in a reality where injustice rules where it should not, where time is oppressive. Jokes stop being funny after a while, don't they? Sex runs its course. Work is broken. Money can't buy us what we really want. As he says, everything is meaningless. As he said a couple passages ago, we're just like the beasts. We live like the beasts of the field. We die like the beasts of the field. No one's going to remember anything that we ever do. We're going to end up leaving everything to someone that we don't even know. And we just turn back into dust. All is absolutely meaningless. And this, this bottomed out conclusion is meant to draw you and me to a place where we depend and hunger and look towards Christ. It's supposed to bring us to the very end of ourselves because it's in Christ that everything is meaningful. It's where money finally makes sense. When Christ is the centerpiece of our affections, it's where work finally makes sense. It's what brings correction to a sex life. It's where laughter makes sense. All is meaningful. But our tour guide today in Solomon, he finds another moment of futility and it is careless, mechanical, and cheap worship, right? He says this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. That's all we're going to do is we're going to do seven verses, but we're going to see God clearly, and we're going to see Christ clearly in this passage today. God's word for us. Ecclesiastes 5, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. 
When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay it. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. This passage, like a lot of passages in the Bible, are best handled a little bit above it, handled as a batch. We'll ruin this if we needle every word to death and I'll tell you the, the uh, Hebrew of every word. The main idea of what he is saying is watch your heart, watch your words, because our God is not an ordinary God. Watch your heart, watch your words, the God we serve is not ordinary. The problem is, is we don't watch our heart, nor do we watch our words, and so we become mechanical and routine. This is natural, by the way. Anytime you do something new, it requires all of your attention, right? It requires all of your focus, and then over time, it just becomes routine. It becomes mechanical. I mean, you you see a a toddler or a little baby trying to figure out how to walk. You can see what it's doing. It's exhausting. They're trying to figure out where to put the next foot, right? They don't even know how to walk. They're grabbing onto things. They're trying to take a risk. They're emotionally involved in the process. Not like that about six months later, though, right? It becomes routine, Maybe you remember what it was like to first get your driver's license, how you're looking both ways before you you move past a stop sign. You just look and look and look, and you're going two miles an hour below the speed limit. You're super nervous about parking the car. (laughs) Add six months. It's not like that, though, right? I remember getting a ticket. One of my first tickets was like a year into having a driver's license, and it's because I was caught driving with my knees while I was eating tacos from Taco Bell. That's how I got one of my first tickets, right? (laughs) Because I thought, come on, it's not calculus. Anyone can drive with their knees. Try it. When you get back in your squad car, it's super easy. You just kind of keep your knees steady, and you can go in a straight line. It's easy to do things like that until you get in an accident. If you've ever been in an accident, isn't it true that when you get behind the wheel again, It's like you're a new driver. You're looking both ways 10 times. You're very cognizant of your speed. You're you're mad when people are tailgating you. Why is that happening? Because the newness of what was routine has been refreshed. But then even then, after a while, doesn't it become mechanical again? Routine. This happens to everything we do. How about your marriage? Some of you, this is why your marriage is banged up, right? Right? Because every year, what was fresh on your honeymoon, fresh on your wedding day, fresh in year one, becomes routine, right? I've been married for over 20 years now. My marriage gets better every year. I'm more in love with my wife now than I've ever been. Our marriage is healthier now than it's ever been. But the one big fight I have is to not treat what is routine in our life routinely. Not to be mechanical with my marriage, because it's easy to do. It's the, it's the number one temptation for couples, right? Same thing with child rearing. Same thing with Christianity. Same thing with Christianity. When I became a new Christian as a college student, as a first-year senior, yes, that means I had two years, <laughs> nothing was mechanical. Everything was new and fresh and novel and unique. I'd wake up every morning ready to charge, take big risks, pray big, I felt alive. When I'd sing, I'd sing with tears in my eyes. 
I told everybody about Jesus. I evangelized anyone who had ears. I would tell my college professors about Jesus. Y'all heard me tell stories about how I'd tell the whole class about Jesus, then get kicked out of the class. I even was in this phase, a short one, because everyone was rebuking me for it, where I would drive home and I would pick up hitchhikers just to preach the gospel to them, right? I had a hitchhiker in my car every day just so I could preach the gospel. This was the kind of life I lived. The Luke before Jesus and the Luke after Jesus are two radically different people, and it freaked those out who knew me best because it was so radical. But as the years advanced, I grew tame and timid and mechanical, and this rambunctious adventurer had become domesticated. I'd sing, but I'd have fewer tears. I'd attend things, but I'd be halfway there, halfway somewhere else, really. I'd mean to get around to reading the Bible. I would have the intention of praying, spending time with my Jesus, my King. I'd make vows and I would fail to meet them. I'd make promises and I would break them. I wouldn't risk my time anymore. I wouldn't risk my money anymore. The the earlier version of Luke, I was giving away paychecks, total paychecks, to ministries and missionaries in the church just to see if God would catch me. That's a totally different sermon, by the way, right? Not anymore. I would always mumble something about being moderate or sensible. What's growing on? I'm growing calcified. Routine had become routine. I'd become rigid, ordinary. My worship was becoming mechanical. I'd show up to a church gathering and I'd think, gosh, this song again. Oh, this song again. This passage again. Does this describe you at all? Even a little bit? I mean, when you woke up this morning, how did you greet the day? When you came here, what were you hoping for? Original question, why are you here, really? What were you hoping to get? Have the scriptures that used to rouse you and stiffen your spine and give you courage, fill you with passion, has it just been replaced with a dry formalism? Singing to the Lord, giving to the Lord, connecting to the Lord. Is this something that you just check a box mechanically, or is this something that you long to do, hunger to do? Because listen, if you're like me or millions and millions of others, it will be easy, very, very, very easy to find yourself in this place called Halfwaysville, right? Halfwaysville, where your lips are doing something, but your heart is very far from it, right? Because it's routine. Monday stuff on Monday, Sunday stuff on Sunday. Hasn't the pandemic been good for us in this? I mean, if there are silver linings, and there are silver linings to what the pandemic has done, it has upended everybody's mechanical routines, right? I mean, they just all went up in smoke. I feel like those dumb movies where somebody is halfway between death and life, they always float above the body, and there are physicians with paddles on the chest yelling clear, you know, and nurses are running around, and everyone's screaming stat. I don't even know what that means, but that's what everyone's yelling. And there's always somebody hovering like a, like a cloud above their dead body or dying body. I don't know. And there's always that moment in the movie, and they always go back to their body, don't they? I mean, they always go back to the body, and they always return with what? A fresh perspective because they've been jolted out of what was routine and what was ordinary. They return with a new paradigm. Hasn't the pandemic been paddles on our chests showing us what has been routine and mechanical? I think a lot of people have realized that 
something like a corporate gathering, let's just take corporate worship. We're not even talking about the worship in your car, worship in the morning, worship in your DNA, your missional community. We're just talking about something like this, right? We're noticing that when the routine is removed, so is that worship, right? I've heard a lot of people in legacy, out of legacy, struggle with this. Why even go back to a church gathering when you can just watch it from home? Why do it? Why go to a missional community when I'm kind of liking the time it's given me back? I can always worship from home. Statistics that have been rendered out by church experts, I don't actually even know who these church experts are. I'm always impressed when I see their names. I just know that they're men that are smarter than me, men and women that have the time to do this thing. They have, they have kind of kneaded out these statistics of what it looks like. What does the church not in a physical gathering look like? Right? It would be everybody, in their view, not at something like this. And what they have found is one-third of the people that are at home on an average Sunday morning right now are following along with their, their local church's pastor, right? So they're the people that are probably watching the sermon that we pre-recorded or watching whatever we're trying to do right now. They're watching it. One-third of people are watching somebody else's pastor, right? Totally makes sense when you think about it. I mean, li- come on. I'm not Matt Chandler. I'm not Tim Keller. Those guys are out there. You could listen to them. It's easy. Nobody will know, right? I won't know. I won't find out. It makes sense. What's freaky is the one-third that aren't doing anything, That's what they found. 33% of the church not at a physical gathering are doing zero. Why? Their corporate worship was linked to a routine. That routine was removed. Now their worship is removed. Right? Listen, this preacher, he's not against routine. He's against routines becoming routinely handled. He's not against routine. Routines are helpful. Traditions are as well, right? Traditions are helpful. It's what builds culture over time. Good routines, good tradition is healthy. It's why we do communion every week. It's why we're going to do it here in not too long. We're about to do communion together. It's why we do a chili cook-off every single birthday that we have, right? We're already planning it as a staff because it's that time of year again. It's fall, right? About to have our big chili cook-off. It's like our ninth or our tenth. I don't even know. But we're about to have it, right? And listen, it's never going to be a (laughs) soup-off, It's never going to be a sandwich fest. It's always going to be chili. Insistent on that. Why? It's tradition. It's tradition. Started it a long time ago. It's healthy. I like routines. I run my life by heavy mechanical routines. But I also know the danger of the content of our rhythms becoming mechanical and inexpensive. Right? It's when we approach a living God as ordinary that we are going to find what this guy is calling futility in our worship. It's when we handle a living God as someone common that he says it's madness, it's futile, it's meaninglessness. If you've been here since June, you notice that one of the things that we've had to pivot in this interaction here due to precautions, as Charlie just said, is we've added what's called a call to worship, okay? We've never had one before as a church. We never really did that. Lots of churches do it. We just didn't. We always had a couple songs uh, before the sermon. Most of our songs are after the sermon, right? But, but we knew what was going on. I mean, when the first song or two were going on, typically what that is is it's an auditory cue for the people out in the foyer to find a soft landing for their conversation because they got into it, somebody they hadn't seen in a week, and they're really excited, and they love them, and they want to talk. And when you hear the music, you're like, all right, it's time to go in there and get a seat, Right? 
I mean, the only people that are really worshiping in those moments are typically guests <laughs> or the nine people that are in here because they don't have anyone to talk to out there. So they come right in and then they stand up and they worship. When that was taken away, we had to innovate. So we added the call to worship. And I'm excited about that. We're going to keep it because it's effective to still the frenetic heart, to aim our gaze, to call our very hearts to attention. This is what David does in Psalm 42. It'll be up on the screen. Stay where you're at. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He's commanding his very own attention in his soul and his emotions. When Charlie comes up and leads in that call to worship or whoever else is doing it instead of Charlie that day, and you need to know she's not leading worship, she's leading worshipers. There's a difference. When Charlie comes up and does that, as she did today, you need to know that that is your cue to remind your soul that your God is not ordinary. That this moment, it's not ordinary. This thing called the gospel It's not ordinary. The Bible we're going to go through is not ordinary. It's not an ordinary moment. Reminds us of that. Reminds us of why we're here. What are we even doing? It prompts us to not be careless. Or as he says, to watch our step. I'm telling you, that initial moment is probably just about as important as anything we do on a Sunday morning, this call to worship. Because if our hearts aren't watchful, if they're not prepared, if they're not engaged, dialed in, expectant, hopeful, then why are we here? What are we doing? What are we hoping for? Even when you open up your Bible, let's take corporate worship out, add personal worship in. When you're reading your Bible, has it become a mechanical, routine motion of just flipping the cover open and going through whatever checklist has told you to go through that day? Matt Smethurst He has this quote in a real powerful blog on, I think the name of the blog is Four Things You Should Do Before You Read the Bible. You can find it online if you just put that much in there, I'm sure. But he says, when you open your Bible, don't expect to be put under some mystical spell. Speak directly with the author. Ask the Spirit to unblind you to the beauty staring you in the face. Statistically, the average believer is hoping to be put under some mystical spell. We can be caught in the mistake of thinking that these moments of worship, here, in your car, on your own, that these moments of worship are meant to meet our needs, to fulfill us, rather than a time for us to glorify God. And when we do that, we have flipped the roles. This is how Stephen Charnick says it. When we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God glorified in our worship, Then we put God below ourselves as though he had been made for us rather than we had been made for him. You have been made for God, friends. He was not made for you. We were made for him. It's futility to reorder worship so that it wows us and meets our preferences. Listen, Jesus spoke very deeply to this in Mark 7. It'll be up on the screen. He says, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's a striking indictment right there. They're doing the right things externally, but inside they're very, very far. Why? Why? They're honoring themselves. That's why. They're honoring themselves. Now, this was for the Pharisees, but it's for me. 
This is for Luke as much as it's for them. But it's for you as well. It's Christ saying it's vanity to worship with mechanical words and deeds, especially when your heart is a million miles that way. It doesn't make any sense. It's madness. It's hevel. This is the, the word that we've been looking at. This is, what, this is what the word futile or vanity means. It looks like it makes sense, but it doesn't make any sense at all. But then he cranks the heat. He accelerates this for us. And then the preacher shifts from our hearts to our mouths. If you make vows, he says, promises, pledges, fulfill them. Because, again, your God's not ordinary. Fulfill them. Our words to each other, as we make vows and covenants and contracts with each other, has value to it. When we make them before God, it has weight to it. When we make them with God, it has weight with it. Our words before God mean something, so follow-through means something. Consistency is important. This is how it says in Deuteronomy 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord, your God, which you have promised with your mouth. I get it. It's Old Testament. I hear you already. It's Old Testament. But does God not have thoughts on broken promises? He's got opinions here. He's got some words for this. And we're in a world that is really good at breaking vows and covenants and promises and welching on them, but as a church, we've, we're not to be outpaced in that. We're also pretty bad at that. We do this risk-reward calculation where we keep promises and vows only as long as they serve us. Only as long as they serve us. It's risk-reward. I'll make this contract, this promise, but if it gets too tough, I'm backing out. If it's too uncomfortable or inconvenient, I'm backing out. I'll start this marriage covenant with you. But if it gets too tough, I'm backing out. I'll jump on this volunteer spot. I promise I'll be somewhere. But if it's too tough, I'm backing out. I commit to this community, to you, covenant to you. But if it gets too tough, I'm backing out. I'll make a financial commitment to this missionary or this institution or this church or whatever. But if it gets too tough, I'm backing out. We're really good at backing out. These are calculated decisions, risk ward me over you decisions, which is why we hear phrases like, yeah, but it's just a piece of paper. It's just a contract. It's just, it's just a marriage. It's just a church. It's just no big deal. Friends, listen, this is where the gospel is most intriguing to me because God is a promise maker, but he makes promises to promise breakers. When you think about this, he's a great covenant maker. He's the greatest covenant and vow maker ever. But he's making his contracts with total villains, notorious villains. And it is the glory of God to do so. It's the grandeur and the glory of God to do this because this isn't how we handle each other. It's not what we're expecting. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He says earlier in Romans, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. You see, God follows through with his covenant promises. And he does so at his cost for our benefit. That risk-reward calculation is actually turned on its head. Where, where we actually honor promises so much as it benefits us, he honors them when it puts him on a cross. When it puts him on a cross. In fact, Jesus' coming at all is God keeping his vow that he will collect a people to himself that he will adore. 
When you want to see how serious God takes keeping a promise, look no further than the gospel. It's a very big picture of how valuable a kept promise is. I don't know, man. I'd, I'd like to think that I'd never make a promise to a villain, just a, a vandal. I'd like to think that I wouldn't be such a moron that I'd get in a contract with someone that was notorious at breaking contracts, right? I'd like to think that if I did end up getting in a contract like that, I'd back out as quick as I could. But what we have in the gospel is something very different where Christ comes to villains who would not only be bad at promise keeping, but we would break that contract at every turn. It's the power of the gospel. He is our great promise maker. He is our great promise keeper. So what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? We don't have to be all thumbs with Ecclesiastes. How, how does God intend for us to hold a passage like this and walk in the light of the gospel? I think one thing is just that we acknowledge that our worship can quickly become very mechanical in empty routines, right? I think another thing is that we have room to repent for making God below us, treating God as someone who was created for us, right? I think we could thank God as a response, for loving us so much, even through the thick smoke of lousy worship and broken promises. And then I think we can stand in awe of God who is not ordinary, a God who is not of this earth, who's not like us. It's not like our idols either. You see, when God is small, it's typically because we've become very big, right? We become very big. But when God swells in size and his grandeur is on display and he becomes the centerpiece of our affections, then we shrink. But when we do that, our words and our worship grow in value. The promises we make, they're heavier. The worship we, we lob towards God, it's not inexpensive, but it's expensive now. Stephen Charnock does this a great benefit by that quote, when we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God glorified in our worship, then we put God below ourselves as though he had been made for us. Some of us really struggle with this. God was not made for you. He was not. This service was not made to entertain you. The music, it's not made to wow you. <laughs> we do the best we can to make it clear and understanding we try to build a hospitable environment, but our gatherings were not made to scratch every itch. Why? We were made for God. To worship when it's easy. To worship when it's hard. In times of peace, in times of war, on Sunday and on the other days, in suffering, in celebration, in routine, out of routine. The big question for you is why are you here? Why are you here? What did you hope for? We have really good news as I end this, and that's that God is the one that enables us to worship. If you hear a sermon like this, or one that is better delivered, you know, that is like this, but you feel provoked to repent, acknowledge, worship, you need to know that's God's work in you. If you feel this free invitation to step close to God, enamored with who he is and what he has done, as a worshiper, you need to know that that expensive moment with those expensive words, that is God's spirit alive in you, empowering you to do that. You don't do that in and of yourself. And hear me now, if you feel shame for being a villain, 
and that's how you feel, you need to know that is not what God is after right now. That's what legalism and law will tilt our heart towards, is feeling like a very dirty person for how we've handled worship. Shame leads us to cower and hide from God, but it's grace and mercy that draws us to God. There is a free invitation today for you to worship God, a God who is not like us, God who is not ordinary, because this Christ came to secure a promise that God made, to create a people unto himself. Not even your performance can shake that loose, because he is a promise maker, and he is a promise keeper. And as Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to take communion together as a church. We've been doing this since June, I believe, typically. And if we have anyone that can go get the elements, I know a lot of people probably missed them when they came in. Do we have a couple people? Ben, can you grab another dude with you? Thanks. They're going to come in in a moment with these little rip and sip cups, right? And uh, if you need one of these, love for you to raise your hand so you can take communion with us. If you are a Christian and maybe you're not even a part of Legacy, we still invite you to take communion with us today. Um, this is something for the church capital C. Uh, but, but listen, if you're not a Christian or you feel like you're a skeptic or you're just here and you're just not sure where you're at with the Lord, I would invite you to take Christ instead of this moment and maybe use this as an opportunity to see the gospel on display through what we call broken bread and spilled blood, okay? Even though this is not bread and blood, all right? So what I'd love to do is maybe take you back to the promise as we take this. Here they are. Raise your hand if you need one of these. They'll bring it to you. You know, for you to be given a new heart and for you to be given a new spirit in the Lord, it came at the cost of God's broken heart in Christ, a shattered heart on the cross. And we knew that this was going to happen because several times in the Old Testament, we would see a, an image of what would be the gospel. We would see a moment where God is describing in brilliant color for us what the gospel would look like. And one of those is in Ezekiel. And I'm going to read it to you because this won't be on the screen. In Ezekiel 36, God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And he's not just speaking about land. He's speaking about a people here. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I have given to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Listen, as we take the communion today, you need to know that this new heart put in you, this new spirit that leads you to worship, that leads you to repent, because you couldn't do those things on your own. It had a cost, and the cost was a shattered heart and spilled blood from the cross. And so when we do this, we do this in remembrance of God. So take the bread, which means you just pull back the little top layer, the clearest layer, not like you can see if it's clear or not right now, but the top one. And I'm gonna pray for you. Father, we thank you for your broken body. 
That was real chemistry and real biology, and it was real flesh with real feelings, with a real pain threshold. And it was broken and torn to pieces on the cross so that mine would be preserved, that we would all have renewed bodies in a different place. And so as we take this, it is in remembrance of what you've done. And we say thank you for a new heart and a new spirit. So let's take the bread. And then you'll pull back the rest of the little cup. And I'm going to pray for this. Father, we even thank you for this cup that symbolizes your spilt blood. Lord, that we would have the blood of kings in our veins, not for any other reason besides you loved us so much that you found us and called us and collected us, just as it says in Ezekiel, a people unto you with a new heart that can feel and respond. This is real blood that you spilt. What you spilt was real blood, and what we take now is just a symbol. It's just a little bit of juice, but we do it in remembrance of what you've done, and we do it with a hope looking forward to a different banqueting table with a new bread and a new juice or in a new wine where we are looking you eye to eye and we're parting with you and we're fellowshipping with you. It'll be a different communion meal. So we look back and we look forward with hope for what you've done. So Lord, we take this juice in remembrance of you. So Father, you are so sweet to us and so kind so gentle and so thoughtful, so passionate and compassionate. You love us and you pursue us even though we are lousy at worshiping. We break promises and you pursue us. We're checking boxes, many of us, routinely, mechanically checking boxes. And we've just made you a box to be checked. And still, <laughs> you don't treat us the same way. It's mystifying. It's mystifying how deep your love is for us. So, Father, we love you in this moment. Give us your spirit that we would worship in spirit and in truth. Give us your spirit that we would respond to your good gospel and your scriptures. And, Lord, let this be a day where we are attentive focused, where like David, we could call our spirit into attention. We could call our soul, our mind, our heart, our emotions to attention and rob every opportunity for this to just become another routine for us. Lord, I thank you for those that you've called here that are struggling with a walk with you. Maybe they're skeptics, but they're far from you. Lord, that this would be the day that you would give them a new heart a feeling heart, not a cold, dead stone one that doesn't respond, but one that is alive and beating, and that you would show them that there's blood on their hands, but you would also show them that there's blood on the cross, and that today, this would be a day that they would become one of your collected people. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray, amen.